Today on the Dad the Best I Can show. And the kids now, it's funny how um, impressionable they are and how much they, they listen and, fo- and like follow the leader, basically. And, and, and I'll tell them, like, hey, if you want to have big muscles, you got to eat your vegetables. Now they're convinced that eating vegetables is like the key. So <laughs> my son, my oldest son, Jack, the one who's going to be um, eight in the summer, he said to my wife, Mom, do I look shorter today? And she's like, no, why? He said, because I ate uh, cake last night after dinner. I ate junk food. Dad said that eating junk food will make you weak. And she's like, no, 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 no. It won't make you stop growing. It's just that you want to eat. Make sure you're getting all your um, vegetables and nutrients. <laughs> so now they're like, you know, when I come home, they'll tell me, they'll give me a re- report of that. I ate an apple at lunch. I ate all my vegetables for dinner. Um, I had just food for breakfast. Hey, now. Welcome to the Dad the Best I Can show. My name is Rob Roseman, who wants to be a millionaire legend, Chicago futures trader, Vegas poker pro. Now I'm a dad to three kids, ages six, four, and one. Phew, where's me out just thinking about it. Each week we're bringing on dads like you to tell us your stories, your tips and tricks to help all of us make it through dad life. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Dad the Best I Can show. We are lucky to be joined by Ken Rideout. Ken, how's it going today? Good, man. How are you? Doing great. Where are you calling in from? Sunny Los Angeles, California. Uh, Brentwood, to be to be specific. I, I work in Brentwood, live in Pacific Palisades, which is right between Santa Monica and Malibu. Beautiful, beautiful. I did a, a year. I, I lived in Westwood. I had a great time back then when I was when I was in my single days. It's an amazing place to be. No, I was going to say, yeah, we've lived out here for um, three years, uh, my wife and I and with our children. And once a week, I say to her, I can't believe it took us this long to move out here. The, the, like anything, there's plenty of things to complain about, mainly the ridiculously high tax rate. But aside from that, I have no problem paying the premium to be here because it is stunning. I mean, we have a view of the ocean. We live in the mountains. It's it's gorgeous. So you were born and raised Boston, is that right? In yep, yep. I grew up in Boston. Um, uh, through went to uh, state college, uh, Framingham State, just outside of Boston, and then moved to New York. Worked in finance for the last twenty plus years, with a stint of um, two plus years in London and Hong Kong in the middle. Yeah, you're you're the Boston, LA. My other one of my other favorite podcasts, Bill Simmons. He made the same move, and he seems to be quite content. He always says, "What took him so long to move to LA?" <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, I can't stress to you how much I love it here. It's just like 70 and sunny every day. If it rains, it's a novelty and it doesn't seem to even, uh, it doesn't have any effect on me whatsoever as it did when I was commuting from um, Westchester County into New York City for two years for an hour each way in my car. Needless to say, I have my fair share of road rage incidents. <laughs> so, Ken, you are a dad. How old are your kids now? So I, uh, well, I'm 48 and my, I'll be 48 in May and my wife just turned 45. We have four kids. Uh, my oldest is a girl, Tensei. She's eight. She's, uh, adopted. We adopted her as a newborn from Ethiopia. Um, and then I have three biological boys that are all exactly two years apart. And, um, the oldest is exactly one year younger than Tensei. We found out that, we were pregnant with my oldest son, Jack, who's seven, uh, while my wife was living in Ethiopia for two months with custody of my daughter. 
Uh, and then we have a five-year-old son named Luke and a three-year-old son named Cameron. I've always got to like double check the ages and uh, <laughs> names because it just seems like there's so many people there. <laughs> that is a lot. We got my oldest. The- my oldest is Cameron too. So we got that in common. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. And we're in the process of adopting, um, a fifth, uh, another little girl and we're just, so we're just on a waiting list and they'll call us when they have, uh, um, a girl, either, uh, either Ethiopian, Haitian or, um, domestic African American. And, and, and just a little bit of background, if you, if you don't mind yeah. um, on why and how we adopted my daughter. And I think that <clears throat> it's easy for people to see us and make some, um, have some preconceived notions, but the truth is my wife and I feel very fortunate to have found each other in in the sense that we both wanted and and want the same things in life. And in the sense of a traditional family, she stays at home. She has a teaching degree from Vanderbilt and worked as a private tutor. She was also an actress and a model in New York for many years. And and she's a sign language interpreter. And, um, we, we, we knew we wanted to um, adopt from the minute we met and discussed the possibility of um, getting married and having kids. So when we started the adoption process, we just knew that we wanted to adopt from a place where we could make the most difference. And, um, you know, my feeling is using myself as an example, if you're born in this country and you want to be successful, the ball's in your court. You can do anything you want here. If, if you work hard, you can do it period this 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 not even up for debate right but however if you're born in some of these third world countries like ethiopia um haiti and orphaned the survival rate is very low so long story short we started looking at the different countries that even have adoption as an option for foreign adoptions. And um, Ethiopia was one of the countries that almost seemed to be the path of least resistance. So it wasn't a matter of like we want to adopt an um, African daughter or, 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 or another ethnicity. None of that mattered to us. We just wanted to make a difference. And as you start going down the list, every country has different requirements, et cetera. Like I said, in Ethiopia, we just offer the path of least resistance and the quickest process. And, but, but even, I just want to stress, even though Ethiopia seemed to offer the path of least resistance, it was not easy. I tell people all the time that they make adoption so it's difficult enough that if you don't really want to do it, like with every ounce of your being, you won't do it. it it's incredibly long, arduous processes, just jumping through a lot of hoops and fingerprints from two or three different um, law enforcement agencies, letter of recommendations. Those have to be notarized. In some cases, the notaries have to be notarized. Um, so it was like a I don't know, a year of almost full-time project. I felt like it was my wife's full-time job for almost a year. So anyway, we, um, once we adopted her and now she's in the house and like I said, she'll be nine in the summer. She says, uh, we, we were, we were always going to adopt one more and she let it be known that she didn't want to be the only kid in our house with brown skin. So that was her one, uh, one request and we have enough boys there. So we wanted to even up the playing field and have one more girl. So that's kind of how we came to that um, conclusion. You're going to have a full five basketball team. Yeah. You got four. That's amazing. <laughs> going to five. I'm at, we, our, our, our jump from two to three, I got to be honest, uh, set us off the, off the rails a little bit. It's tough, but I'm guessing once you go three to four, four to five, you got it kind of figured out, or at least your wife is a superstar. 
Yeah, then I'll get to that later. But, you know, in a nutshell, if you want to be a good dad, you better have a good wife and a good partner. And you guys better be on the same page with what you're hoping to accomplish as parents and what your parenting styles are. Um, because my wife basically runs the whole show. She She's she's the uh the voice of authority in the house when it comes to all things parenting but um yeah we'll have a full basketball team but at times it feels much more like a fight club at our house <laughs> there's a lot of uh bickering and yeah uh you know rule enforcement going on all right it's funny i i tell a lot of people that jump from two to three was was a lot more challenging and everybody likes to say that cliche oh you're going from man to man to zone and I'm like, yep. I don't know if you played basketball, but when I was a kid, zone was easier than man to man. This is like a, a whole different ball game. So <laughs> that's exactly right. And especially when they're really young, like now they're starting to get older. And it's funny that my, my daughter almost falls into the um, stereotype of girls being more mature and responsible. Like I can ask her to do anything and she, and I know she's going to do it. And, and, you know, we have a lot of rules around tap, being a tattletale and when to be a when to come and tell me something and when to handle it yourself. But she seems to always know when the time is right to come and tell me if they're doing if the boys are doing something to hurt each other or doing something dangerous. You know, because sometimes they'll come to tattle and I'll just stop them and be like, huh, is this something you can handle on your own or do you need me to get involved? And if I have to get involved and it's petty, then I typically would say like to the offender, okay, you, you did this to her. Okay, go to your room 10 minutes, start the timer. Sensei, uh, you can go to your room for 10 minutes. So why am I going to my room? Because you're a tattletale. You uh, gotta fix this yourself. <laughs> you guys got to resolve this. I'm not having this. I can't be stopping what I'm doing because someone pinched you. <laughs> the end so now that now they know <laughs> that's, that's a great tip we're we're struggling with that all the time and i want to tell the older my son cameron i'm like you're just as at fault i don't need i don't have the bandwidth to hear every one of your little skirmishes so i might implement that starting today my wife went out of town i need some i need some good tips for the next few days so i'm going to use that one. Oh yeah that's that, that's a good one you'll have to do it once or twice and you'll get the hint real quick the other <laughs> thing that um drives me insane with these kids is you know, two of them, they, they share a room. There's two two bedrooms and there's two in each room. And um, I'll come in and someone will be talking. I hear one of them, you know, after they're supposed to be in bed. And I come in and say, uh, you know, Jack, why, why are you talking to him? He's trying to go to sleep. And inevitably he'll say, he was talking too. And I said, great. <laughs> now you were getting in trouble for talking. And now you're a tattletale too. <laughs> Now, what good does it do to bring him down with you? You're not going to get in less trouble because he was talking. Why would you want to do that to him? Now he's in trouble unnecessarily. You're the only one to get caught. Just take your medicine and move on. <laughs> now I'm really that. upset that you had to throw him under the... He's, they get it, and then they stop doing it. So sometimes I'll come in. They're literally like, uh, I'm training up good bank robbers. I'll come <laughs> in the room and be like, who's doing that in here? You tell me right now, who was making the noise? And they'll all just sit there and look at each other. Literally like, I'm like, Oh, we're going to play this game now. And they will literally sit there like hard, hardcore criminals and just <laughs> no one will admit what they did. And I almost feel to a certain extent proud of them. Like, all right, I'm going to give you a free pass since you guys are like protecting each other. <laughs> Cause that's what I want them to do is like, no, when it's not, no one was doing anything dangerous. I just want them to, look out for each other, protect each other, even with little things like that. It's like, we got to stick together. How old are they? So oh. they're nine, nine, eight, seven, nine, eight, six, and four. 
right. the summer. They all they they'll all age up nine, eight, six, and four in the summer. Yeah, so that's the thing that we're but at. We're at the, like the six months. and four. They're best friends, but they're at each other all the time. And the four year old always feels like everything is unfair, which drives me crazy because I'll even give him the life's not fair uh, line. But I guess in his mind, you know, when you're the younger sibling, the older one's going to dictate everything. So I try to put myself in his shoes, but like you, it drives me absolutely insane. And I'm like tired of telling him that uh, you guys figure it out, you know? I think that that's one of the hardest things that I struggle with with my kids is making sure that they all feel equally loved and equally um, as valuable because, you know, the older boy, we, we play a lot of sports in the house, but, you know, healthy version. I'm never trying to live vicariously through my kids. Nothing drives me more crazy than when the dads are like, too over overly involved with their kids athletic endeavors just like just introduce them hope that they're passionate and try and encourage but like they're not they're not you if you just because you you know the the chances of being a superstar are slim to none let them have fun and then superstars will like let themselves be known all the training in the world isn't going to make you as good as LeBron James. <laughs> and um, one of the things I struggle with is when, you know, I'm throwing passes to them, like they love to play football in the backyard and I, they'll run out, they'll run pass routes and I'll throw them uh, passes. And the baby is just so young. He's just happy when one doesn't hit his face and he catches it. But the, but the middle one who's going to be um, six in the summer, Luke, he gets so down on himself because the eight-year-old is like catching everything and he's getting pretty good. And I'm like, dude, he's two years older than you. Imagine what you're going to do in two years. But uh, it's, it's, it's difficult for me to remember that their brain is still developing and they just don't have the same rationale. They don't have the ability to like understand things the way adults do. And, and, and that's one of the things that I struggle with the most is just trying not to get frustrated when they do things that kids do because they just don't know any better. Yeah. You know what I mean? That, that, oh. That's one of the, I really have a hard time with that. I know. I think I'm, I think learning it is, you know, obviously you're not going to be able to act that way every time, but being able to have the awareness of it is step one. So maybe every one of every two or three times now I can kind of get down on my knees and give him a hug and tell him, yeah, I understand you're frustrated. Whereas before I would just be just so annoyed that he was, you know, that he is freaking out over the littlest thing, but, yeah, it's true. It's a learning process for dads. <laughs> and I was—I don't know about you, but I was like you said, I was the older brother. So uh, for me, you know, it's different being a younger sibling that I, you know, we've never been through that. That's right. And I, yeah, I was the oldest too. I have two younger brothers, but I, um, that's one thing that I do is constantly, so I can be a little bit rough with them at times. Like we, we don't have a lot of time for like pussyfooting and being overly sensitive with um, different subjects. Like we're just kind of, like a little bit of tough love at times, if you will. And, um, but one thing I do always do is make time when I see them in the morning, I always hug them and tell them I love them. And I'm like overly affectionate with them, which, which probably has them scratching their head when they're like, <laughs> dad was ready to kill me last night. And now he's telling me he loves me, but I, but I get the sense that they genuinely feel it. So you can, you I don't keep... know. all you can do is try your best, man. You're going to make mistakes. Everybody does. You just hope yeah. they're not, they're not too damaged. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you gotta you gotta keep them guessing too. Keep them on their toes. Let them, uh, you know, feel that feel those boundaries and feel secure, but also show me love them. I think it's it's hard to do, but yeah, I got to remind myself of that every day. That's exactly right, and I think that one thing one thing a lot of people don't do, and what I what I have found to be one of the most helpful things that we that my wife does is to have a schedule and have rules. Um, I think kids 
perform their best and even adults. I, I can, I know that that's the case for me is um, when I'm on a schedule and have structure and I'm in a routine, I'm productive, I'm getting stuff done. And that's hard to do, obviously, when you're working and um, traveling. And But to the extent you can keep some consistency, even on the road, and I found that to be like the biggest, uh, the, the biggest way to keep the kids content and seemingly happy is keep them on a schedule. There's no, there's no gray area. You're eating dinner at this time. You're going to bed at this time. So it's not a struggle every night. And I know people that don't do that. And every night it's a struggle to get their kids to bed or the kids don't stay in their own beds or the kids don't want to eat their dinner. It's like, that's foreign to us because there's no gray area. You're going to do this period. And very rarely will they get defiant and not want to do what's on the schedule. Oh, and that sounds like from what I know about you, that's how you live your life with all your uh, athletic achievements, your your training, your fitness. That's that's a big part of your life as well. I definitely try to, I mean, to the best that I can. It's the only thing that I am in control of is my own body and my own actions. And that's I, I just take pride in that. And it's something that I can rely on and count on and know that that's in that's in my control and a direct reflection of the work that I've done and that's my own fitness and um you know race results now and yeah so uh one other thing that that might be helpful for people is when when my daughter was around I want to say three somewhere between three and five she just would never want to eat dinner whatever my wife would tell her was for dinner at the last minute she'd have a problem with it so my wife is literally like the baby whisperer. She's really, <laughs> really good. And um, she just decided, you know, I'm going to try something. I, she put a, uh, like this big um, uh, stick up on the wall, the sticky like uh, dry erase sticker thing that just like static clings to the wall. And she would write the weekly um, dinner menu on there. The minute she put that up there, I, I promise you, my daughter never objected to a single thing. As long as she knew what was coming. It was literally like magic. All of a sudden, there was never, not one single gripe. Even if it was something she didn't like, she'd just power through it because she knew there was no other option. <laughs> You're eating wow. dinner. You know, everyone has a couple things they don't like, which, we, which we're tolerant of. But once we had a schedule up there, it was like etched in stone. There was never a moment of um, objection. I'm writing that one down. I'm going to implement that too. Cause I, I, I've got a little bit of the reverse setup. My wife is a rock star in her career. That was why we moved here. So I've taken on the role of stay at home dad. So some of these things are kind of foreign to me and I'm trying to learn and I'm, I'm realizing, right. Schedule, which wasn't always my specialty. You know, I had a, you know, different career. I was a poker player in Vegas, had my own hours and everything like the kids crave that. And like you said, even just seeing it in writing, might might help them uh eat eat what's being served to them instead of surprise it's a brussels sprouts no thanks right exactly and i primarily eat a um, vegan diet um for sure vegetarian i never eat meat um but occasionally if there's like if we're having pizza and i've trained hot like done a long training day on the weekend sometimes i'll have pizza or something like that but for the most part i eat um only vegetables and the kids now it's funny how um, impressionable they are and how much they, they listen and, fo and like follow the leader, basically. And, and, and I'll tell them, like, hey, if you want to have big muscles, you've got to eat your vegetables. Now they're convinced that eating vegetables is like the key. So <laughs> my son, my oldest son, Jack, the one who's going to be um, eight in the summer, he said to my wife, mom, do I look shorter today? And she's like, no, why? He said, 
because I ate uh, cake last night after dinner. I ate junk food. Dad said that eating junk food will make you weak. And she's like, no, 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 no. It won't make you stop growing. It's just that you want to eat. Make sure you're getting all your um, vegetables and nutrients. <laughs> so now they're like, you know, when I come home, they'll tell me, they'll give me a re- report of that. I ate an apple at lunch. I ate all my vegetables for dinner. Um, I had just fruit for breakfast. It's, it's, I don't know. I think that um, the diet is underrated for children. Yeah, yeah. You're not just talking the talk, too. You're modeling the behavior, doing triathlons, marathons. They see you playing sports. I'm sure they, they want to be just like dad, right? Exactly. But, but one, like I said earlier, I'm super cautious and aware of not basically forcing my passions on them. I want them to be, I don't care if it's a guitar, they want to play the guitar, they want to like take a sewing class sons or daughters like i don't care i just want them to be passionate yes i'd love them to be olympic athletes and uh professional athletes of course i would i'd also like like them all to go to like the military academies and be like great leaders but (laughs) those are things that a they have to have the natural abilities for at least for the athletic part and b they have to have their own passion all i care about is do you did you try your best and are you passionate like i I, are you into it you know what i mean like you're not going to be the best at anything things especially in sports get more competitive i feel like every year people are specializing in sports from a super young age and i think the 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 point there is if you're not passionate i can't make you want to play anything every single day and get better and and do all the extra little things that make people superstars at their chosen profession or 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 hobby you have to want to do that and 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 there's nothing i can say or do to make you feel like that so my goal is to just introduce them to a lot of things lead by example and hope that you know just by being exposed to that kind of passion and work ethic that they pick that up and 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 make it their own in some way let's take a quick break for our dad tip of the week brought to you by kickstart reading do you have kids between the ages of three and six i've got two boys and when my older son was going into kindergarten my wife and i quickly learned that we had no idea how to teach him how to read We found Kickstart Reading and watched one two-minute video together, and you could see his confidence take off. Bonus, I felt like dad of the year. Here's another dad talking about how Kickstart Reading is helping his boys learn how to read. Hey there, this is Chris Heller, and I'm a big fan of Kickstart Reading. Each morning before school, I show a video to my four-and-a-half-year-old son, and now his little two-year-old brother is getting in on the action as well. I'm a big fan of the videos highly consumable and engaging for young boys. Definite recommend for all parents out there who are looking to get their kids off to the right start with reading, Kickstart Reading. Go to kickstartreading.com and use the code DAD to get 65% off right now. That's D-A-D, DAD. See, it works. Kickstartreading.com. Now back to the show. All right, Ken, on the Dad the Best I Can show, we like to do a dad tip of the week. Do you have a dad tip for other dads out there? Well, the first tip, I I have a couple, but my most important dad tip is going to be marry a good wife. (laughs) Marry Marry someone that shares your goals and beliefs with regards to being a parent because I have found that that is 
the most important thing you can do is have a uniformed front. And even when my wife and I do agree on everything with regards to parenting and discipline, we, I still find that there's areas that we'll disagree on from time to time. But honestly, I'm not, I'm kind of being funny, but not really in in that (laughs) mom spends a lot more time with the kids. And it's very important that my wife and I are on the same page with regards to what we're trying to accomplish here. Um, so, so that's number one. And the other thing that I'll say is kids, you can tell your kids and, 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 and do anything you want to do and trying to get them to behave the way you want them to, to do the way you want them to. But the most, I've found that the most important thing you can do is behave the way you want them to behave. They're watching every single thing that you do. If I snap at one of them, um, once or twice, inevitably a day or two later, my wife will tell me that my oldest son said or did the same thing that I did in disciplining someone else. And I have to remind him all the time, you're not the dad. And while it's easy to say, do as I say, not as I do, that goes in one ear and out the other. They're watching and absorbing everything that you do from the way I talk to the children, to the way I talk to my wife, to the way I talk to my friends and colleagues, and the way I handle my personal business, like my work, you know, which is a big part of my life. They see that, and, and, and as they've gotten older, it's been fun to watch them try to emulate the good stuff. Obviously, it's embarrassing and disappointing when I see them emulating my bad behavior, in particular cursing. I have a terrible habit of cursing. <laughs> and um, when I hear them curse, or they would never curse in front of me blatantly, but my wife will hear them cursing to each other and then call me and scream at me. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, my, uh, that's probably the most important thing is uh, lead by example. Yeah, I was going to say the first tip, hopefully not, but it might be too late for some people. But uh, if there are any, uh, <laughs> any uh, single people listening, then yes, Mary well, I did the same. I, I don't know about you, but I, I was a little older. I waited till I was 34 or 5 to uh, get married when I was definitely a little wiser. So hopefully I'll pass that along to my kids, my boys too, is wait till your brain is developed before you uh, make that kind of commitment and, and marry up, marry, marry, marry wisely. That's right. Yeah, no, I got married at uh, 37 and my wife was 34. So yeah, we both knew at that point that, um, you know, we, we were we were ready to get married and start a family. And then we had our first, um, we adopted my daughter when I was 40 and she was 37. And then they started coming uh, shortly thereafter. It's yeah. funny, we had um, struggled with um, fertility issues, but undiagnosed, you know, it's we, we joke a lot. We joke about it often, my wife and I, that, uh, you know, you spend your whole like adult life, you know, from whatever point people start to um, have relationships, hoping that someone doesn't get pregnant. And <laughs> then when you're then when you're trying to get pregnant and it's not happening right away, it's literally the most frustrating and can be incredibly debilitating uh, process. And my wife struggled with this all like massively emotionally she was just like why is this happening and um we didn't have any diagnosed medical problems we went through uh she might get mad at me for sharing all this but i think it's important for people that are going through this we um she struggled with this for 
I want to say three or four years, we went through seven in vitros, three miscarriages. And, you know, in vitro fertilization is like, you know, 10 to 20 grand a pop. And when it's not working, so she got pregnant three times like that, then miscarriage, four of them didn't work. And you're just like, wow, I never imagined that this might not happen. Now, now coincidentally, we had started the adoption process as we were trying to start our own, have our own biological kids. And it just so happened that um, the, the, the adoption process um, went through and we got matched up with my daughter before she got pregnant. But literally, and, and if someone told me this story before it had happened to me, I would have said, oh, that's crazy. Isn't it? That's all like psychosemantic. It's not real. It's just coincidental. But as soon as we went over there and took custody of my daughter, we were there for a week together. You know, you go through the adoption process in the local courts. She's, uh, according to Ethiopia, she was ours, but then we had to wait for the documentation to be approved and finalized with the U.S. Embassy in Addis Ababa. So she had to live there for two months in this guest house. That's a whole topic for a whole nother podcast. And, um, yeah, I came home. I was home for about a month, and then she says she wasn't feeling that well. My wife's never been in the hospital for anything. She's never gets sick, nothing. Uh, never had a broken bone, nothing. And, um, so she says, oh, man, I'm not feeling good, which maybe she said to me three times in her life. And uh, I said, oh, sure, it'll get better. And and I was going back for Thanksgiving after I had been gone for uh, four weeks. So um, when I went over, she said, bring a pregnancy test just in case. And I was like, man, I'm done spending money on all this pregnancy stuff. It's been like a bottomless pit. It doesn't matter. Nothing's going to change. So, and, I mean, I was just ranting. But then I, I brought the test. She took the test. She's pregnant. But, again, she had been pregnant a few times before, so we weren't like – we didn't want to overreact. We were just like, oh, it is what it is. Let's see what happens. And uh, yeah, she came home a month late, a month after that. And um, my son was literally due on my daughter's first birthday and he was came three weeks early. But yeah, after that, then we had uh, two more kids exactly two years apart. All their birthdays are within five weeks in the summer. Um, so yeah, I, if, to, if, if someone is listening and they are struggling with fertility, I, I know firsthand that it can be incredibly frustrating. Um, all I can say is enjoy the process and keep trying. You know, it's it's different if you have an identifiable medical problem that they're trying to, um, you know, treat with uh, medication. But we didn't. That wasn't the case for us. And 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 all the medicine in the world didn't do anything. Just nature just kind of took over <clears throat> now whether or not it had anything to do psychologically with having uh having our first daughter in our in our custody I, i'm a big i'm a big believer in science so i i don't i tend to think it's coincidental but it's hard to argue with what happened right yeah that's that is helpful and i'm glad you brought that up because i've you know thankfully we didn't really have issues but a lot of my friends have had issues with that and what would you say maybe to even like other other guys out there that are trying that obviously it's hard for them, but just so debilitating for their wives? What can they say, do? Are there any tips that you can give people to just, you know, ride through it or just be there for them? Yeah, you know what? The, the, the This goes along with the, uh, my own parenting style with my kids. And, and it's the way I dealt with, with my wife. And I was like, <clears throat> listen what are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do? We can only do deal with what's in front of us. Like it will happen when it happens. And if it doesn't, then that's, 
the way things are meant to be and we'll just keep adopting kids and it's hard to explain once you haven't adopted a child you realize it's the exact same thing there's not a single ounce of different emotion involved with my adopted daughter versus my biological sons i love them all the same they get they she gets she gets yelled at and uh disciplined as much as the rest of the kids and she gets the same amount of love if anything i have to make sure that she constantly understands that she's loved just as much as everyone else but I might not be the best person because I, my wife used to get really emotional about it. And I'm like, dude, I married you. I didn't marry you to with the only objective is to have children. We'll, we'll figure it out. We'll make this work. We're going to, if, if we only have adopted kids, then it is what it is. But it was really, like I said, I might not be the best person because she was really struggling with it and had a hard time feeling like, um, I don't know if worthy is the right word, but she used to always feel like, you know, empty inside like why this is all I ever wanted to be was a mom like and a wife what why why isn't why is this happening to me but I don't know you know I just stay the course keep working I just say keep plugging away no pun intended <laughs> yeah so you gotta laugh about it sometimes too that's the only way to get through the day sometimes right dude you have to what are you gonna do it's like out of your control nature is gonna do what it's gonna do it's, it's you, you can't beat yourself up over things that you cannot control and that falls into that category you can just try every month and do your best oh, i appreciate you sharing it because i know you know women talk a lot about this kind of thing and there isn't really a platform for guys to you know i i don't talk about a lot of the stuff with my guy friends so I'm hearing people's stories like yours is really is really helpful so i appreciate you telling it ken Oh, happy to share, man. I'm, 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 I'm happy if, if I can help someone with my own stories. It makes me, makes me feel good about myself. So Ken and I, we connected indirectly through uh, Jesse Itzler, and uh, I guess you did one of his crazy races that I only see on the internet. What was it? The Everest one? Was that the one you jumped in? Yep, yep. I did the twenty nine oh twenty nine event in um in Utah. Uh Mark Hodelik is uh reached out via uh, my friend Rob Moore who does some of the PR work for those guys and I was incredibly grateful and happy to be part of it. And uh to be honest with you, I went there, I tell these guys this story all the time. I have done uh, the Ironman in Hawaii three times. I've run comp- somewhat competitively for uh you know, over 40. I um, ran a 233 and 234 marathons the last two times out and uh, last two races I've done. And so I I consider myself somewhat competitive. So I just figured, oh, it's a hiking event and it's not a race. I'm just going to like storm up and down the mountain until I get to 29,000 feet. It'll be a non-event and it'll just be fun to spend some time with some buddies. Well, after like three or four times up the the mountain, I was like, dude, I better eat something. I mean, I'm going to like faint um this is like a this is serious it's it's not as obviously as intense as a uh marathon or an ironman meaning it's not like you know redlining for eight or nine hours but it was a hell of a lot of work and it was much much more difficult than i could have ever imagined uh that being said it wasn't something that you know it's like any physical goal you're just like okay that's in front of me i'm just going to keep going until uh, until it's done or until i can't go anymore which you know, happened to more than uh, a few people at this event. It it is not easy, but it was um, it was probably one of the most rewarding um, athletic events I've participated in the last several years. Just because there were so many good people, and it was such a diverse group. It was 
diverse from a socioeconomic stance. It was diverse from an athlete, certainly from an athletic standpoint. There were people there who were just hoping to make it up the mountain once. And basically you had to walk up and down this mountain. I want to say like 13, 13 times to get to a total of 29,000, 29 feet, the equivalent of hiking to the top of Everest. And you'd hike up, take the gondola down. But the most, um, the most, um, I don't know, impactful part of the, of that whole event was the people that were there. They were just incredible people. I mean, people like yourself that I I met a lot of guys like you that are, are, are just like doing, um, such an eclectic group of professionals. You know, I work in finance and tend to like be around only other finance people, uh, except for maybe when I'm like doing endurance events. But even those, there are like solitary endeavors. You know, there's a lot of people that help you with your training and stuff. But on race day, it's just you. And at this event, it was like a real sense of community in that people were very encouraging towards each other. And it was, like I said, such a diverse group from survive, like people just hoping to complete and people that were hoping to be competitive and go as fast as they can. And uh, Kevin, the cop was out there setting the, <laughs> setting the pace. One of Jesse's friends who I think is a cop on uh, Long Island was out there smashing up and down this hill. And um, we kind of, my, me, uh, Rob Moore and my friend, Justin Dare, who's a professional triathlete were there along with two uh, Olympic triathletes, uh, Greg Billington and, um, and uh, Joe Malloy. And uh, so it was clear that Kevin and Greg Billington were miles ahead of everyone, but they went out purposely to try to see who could get up and down the fastest. We just, me, Rob, and uh, Justin Dare just kind of did it to complete it and enjoy the process. And uh, so (laughs) with a few laps to go, we finally pulled Greg Billington aside as the triathlon representative. And I was like, dude, you cannot let this civilian beat us. Like (laughs) it's on you now. You're the only one close enough to catch him. You have to go. And he literally went, put on running shoes. I, I can't stress to you how steep this thing was. It was like, I don't know, two miles and like 2,500 feet, something like that. But it was basically hiking up the side of, uh, up a ski, uh, ski run. So Greg went in and put on his sneakers and started just smashing up and down the hill. And he beat Kevin maybe by like half a lap, but not by much. So I had to tell Kevin that story afterwards, how incredibly impressed I was with his performance, given that Greg is a, an elite Olympic athlete you know, two years removed from Rio games. And he had to basically redline it for the last two or three laps to keep up with this guy who's like, and Kevin is probably, I'm guessing early to mid forties and uh, a cop, you know, he's, he's not on the same athletic uh, or or not putting in the same kind of time that an Olympic triathlete was putting in, in terms of training. So uh, shout out to Kevin, the cop for um, raising the bar there. He, I, th- I think he, he's the same Kevin as that inspired uh, Jesse's Kevin's rule, which is uh, schedule trips with your buddies, which I'm a big proponent of and trying to get my friends to do. So this Kevin sounds like a superstar. Oh, super, oh, just a super nice guy. I actually raced him again. Well, actually, that time we, I was just participating, but I raced him at the Jesse had an event at his house this winter called Hell on the Hill, which is basically 100 times up and down this 80-yard hill in his in his backyard that goes down to a lake but again it's like uh i don't know what the grade is maybe like 20 percent, 30 percent grade which is incredibly steep and you basically run up and down it a hundred times in a circle and uh i just went out there like you know what last time i did that uh mountain climbing event i was in uh 
completer mode versus competitor. So this time I was like, you know what, I'm going to race this one. And I know Kevin's going to go out hard too. So I'll kind of get an idea of how hard I need to go from him after the first few laps. And uh, my God, when I finished that thing, I literally thought I was going to have to call an EMT. <laughs> I was supposed to call out for a medic when I finished. It was hellacious. And even with going as hard as I could the whole time, it was in the middle of January and I wasn't really training for anything per se other than life. So I wasn't in like top shape but even still i i went hard and i still was about two or three minutes off kevin's uh record from a previous year that uh he had done it in the summer which was probably a little hotter in the heat but yeah kevin is uh inspirational dude and a really good dude all of those guys are great man jesse and his whole crew he surrounds himself with really good people i i i can't stress that enough how enjoyable his any event that he puts on it's like professionally professionally produced and everyone there is genuinely kind and nice it's it's a real refreshing uh event anytime you can participate with those guys yeah he's i mean so relatable and i gotta ask you though you guys are such badasses with your fitness and your endurance stuff what would you say to i'm sure a lot of dads especially the ones crossing 40 that probably aren't in the same athletic or fitness shape but I'm sure you think it's a, one of the most important parts of your life, you know, just for your mental health, your physical health. How could us normal, us mere mortals, you know, start up kind of a, whether it's a training program or just something to improve our fitness and, and why it's so important to, to dads, you know, to model for their kids and just to have the energy to get through these days? Um, well, <clears throat> first of all, from a mental health perspective, like I... I feel like I'm a manic depressive, depressant or depressive, whatever the term is. If I weren't working out, like I couldn't imagine my mental state because I struggle with uh, depression slash anxiety on a daily basis almost myself. But that workout is the one constant and it's the one thing that I know keeps me balanced and stable. It, it, it's hard to explain, but I couldn't imagine my life without it. I couldn't imagine uh, not being able to get up and work out in the morning. And um, to your comment about mere mortals, I, um, I'm just a regular dude, just like anyone else. I mean, I ran a marathon um, back in the late nineties, just to see if I could do it. And I want to say I ran like a three twenty. So what's the, like 7.30 per mile, like respectable, but not like a world beater, you know, middle of the pack, I would think for people who are trying, um, you know, there's always, every, everything in life is is relative, right? I mean, so relatively speaking, I thought that that was just, you know, I finished, it was cool. I wasn't in, in a threat to like win anything. And up until probably 10 years ago, I was just a casual weekend runner. And then, I started training a little bit more. Uh, I started training for triathlon and I slowly started to realize that my running was improving and, and I've had some success in triathlon, but again, all relative, you know, I'd be happy to be in the top three to five in my age group at an Ironman or a big, you know, national type race. But in the last few years, I started to realize if I put in some more effort, I wonder if I could win a, a half marathon, a marathon. And I started to set those goals and I can't stress you enough. Like I'm just an average person. I'm just trying hard. And I the thing I like about running is 
and growing up, I played football and hockey in college and I boxed through college. And, um, when I got out of school, I boxed for the New York athletic club. And, um, the one thing I like about running is even when you're tired, no one's going to punch your face. So all of your pain is like in your control. So, you know, unless you feel like you're going to drop dead, then you've got more to give. And I just, again, it's slowly eased into this, like, feeling of being competitive first it was let me see if i can get in the top 10 then in the top three and and then it happened very quickly like the 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 level started to improve i remember i ran a 121 half marathon and thought like my god that's unbelievable i ran a 130 two years ago i feel like i'm improving dramatically and then the next year i ran 117 and you know that was probably five years ago and this Two weeks ago, I ran a 112 in Philly and came fifth overall out of, you know, 11,000 people. And we remember at the, at the finish being like, damn it, I thought I could win that one. And just realizing and talking to my wife how far I've come without even realizing, you know, it, it, it's like anything like, a, like Alcoholics Anonymous or a drug rehab. It's like if you start focusing on some grandiose goal from jump street, then it's going to seem unrealistic to think I can do all that in X amount of time versus I'm just going to follow the schedule today. Let me just see if I can get my workout in today and then I'll set some uh, races and measuring sticks at different intervals throughout the year and see if I can hit like different goals. But to me, the key to improving in that, whether it's just to get fit or to be competitive is to have a schedule and have a routine and stick to it. it is, it's a non-negotiable. Someone asked the other day, do you ever hit the snooze button on my phone? That's so foreign to me. And I know it sounds crazy. I'm not telling you that to say, oh, look how great I am. I'm, I'm furthest thing from great. As a matter of fact, I have a terrible opinion of myself, but that's, again, a whole other topic. I don't, that's not a negotiation I have ever. I just get up and do it. And if I don't, I know I'm going to be like depressed when I get to work because now it's hanging over my head so much so that it just never happens, whether it's raining, anything. I mean, I guess if it's a torrential downpour, I'll run on the treadmill. But if that happens once in a year, it's a lot. So my my advice there is stick to it, like come up with a plan and stick to it. You're the one who's it's, it's have something you can be proud of, you know, you only have to look at yourself in the mirror. No one else is going to care if you did your run this morning, but do it for yourself. It's the one thing that you can control. I like it. Yeah. Having, and having something to yourself. I know Jesse preaches this too, especially when you have kids. I mean, you're up four about to have five. If you can't find that you time and hopefully make it kind of productive, you're going to lose your mind. So like, I think we're all borderline losing our minds. So having those kind of outlets has, has got to be a, a good thing for your physical and your mental health. Yeah, man, you have to do it. If you, you, you it, it, it's an investment in yourself. If you don't do it, you just like, would you drive your car a hundred thousand miles without changing the oil? Like, why would you neglect your body? It's like your car. If you had an expensive car, you wouldn't, you wouldn't treat it like that. You'd get it washed occasionally. You change the oil, and that's how exercise and diet is. I mean, no one's perfect. And just like with your car, sometimes I drive it too hard and too fast and it's probably not good for the car. And sometimes I do things like drinking and partying and things that, you know, the next day I'm not happy about, but no, no one's perfect. And if you're trying to live a perfect life, it's just, I don't know how you maintain that, but 
there has to be some things that are non-negotiable and exercise and diet for me is one of them. If you're eating a healthy diet and you want to have some junk food occasionally, cool. I mean, you can eat junk food whenever you want. It's just, I don't know if you don't, it's like if you don't have some rules in place and some, some guidelines for yourself, it's just quickly like uh, junk food once a week becomes junk food once a day becomes the norm. And I mean, you wouldn't put, you know, crap into your gas tank of your car. So why put that into like the most important machine you control your body? I, I don't know. I, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> Let me hit you with some uh, rapid fire questions. Ken, if you're ready, yeah. ready. All right. Yeah. What's, what's the first car you ever owned? Uh, a Buick 79 Buick LeSabre that belonged to my grandfather, got passed to my dad. And then eventually to me, it was like the size of the Titanic <laughs> took leaded gas. What what's your favorite dramatic movie of all time? Uh, Raging Bull. Well, that was going to be my next question. You're a, you host a boxing podcast. What's the best boxing movie of all time? I'm guessing it's Raging Bull. Yeah, I would say Raging Bull and then um, The Fighter because I worked with Mickey Ward at the um, – I worked in a prison for four years while I paid for college um, in Massachusetts. And Mickey Ward was a guard there and his brother Dickie Eklund, who was his trainer in the movie The Fighter, was an inmate there. So you played quarterback in college. In your unbiased expert opinion, who is the best quarterback of all time? Oh, Tom Brady, not even close. <laughs> He's the best if he played with his left hand. <laughs> what is the best live sporting event you ever saw? Oh, not even a question. Uh, it would be a boxing match and take your pick. Bernard Hopkins against um, Oscar De La Hoya. Um, I saw Mike Tyson fight uh, Peter Nielsen, I think it was, in Copenhagen, Denmark. It's It's hard to pick one, but I think – if you can get good seats to a big prize fight, like a really big prize fight, that's the best event in the world to me. And I saw the Red Sox win the World Series this year in um, in L.A. with my son, Jack. And that was the first baseball game he's ever gone to. And we got to see the Red Sox clinch the World Series. So that was pretty cool. So that's probably the best just because he was there with me. Right. Yeah, you're the second guest to say boxing we had uh my friend brad feinberg on who's a big football fan and he said hands down in 98 he saw Gotti versus robinson at the spectrum and he said it was the best sporting event he's ever seen oh anytime you can see any anyone who got to see arturo Gotti fight got their money's worth that guy had zero defense and all heart and he could throw uh i saw him beat uh kid from Maine, Joey Gamach, literally almost killed him. They Back then, you could weigh in. I think they weighed in like the morning before the fight, and there was no rehydration requirements, meaning you could put on as much weight as you wanted afterwards. And literally, Gotti got into the ring 21 pounds heavier than uh, Joey Gamach and hit him. I mean, he was Gamach was sl slightly outclassed, but Gotti hit him with such a shot. I mean, literally like stretcher, ambulance. I mean, he never um, Gamach never fought again, and that's when they started to implement some rehydration rules in terms of how much weight a fighter can gain after making weight for the fight. It was crazy. So that leads into uh, you host a boxing podcast with uh, the man, Teddy Atlas. It's called The Fight. And yes. before before we even start, I got to tell you a story. I was uh, preparing for this interview and I started listening. I had the kids in the car, taking them on a 
kids in the minivan taking them on a nap. That's part of our, our weekend tradition where I get a little break. And I started listening <laughs> to this this episode you had with uh, Andrew Cancio. And holy oh, crap, this was like this was like a movie. I think you said it. It was like a movie. The kids actually woke up like an hour later and I told them to go back to sleep because I had to hear the end of this. It was just just, fan- just fantastic. Can you can you tell us a little bit about Andrew's story? And uh, definitely people should check it out. Yeah, I've actually become really good friends with Andrew. He lives in Oxnard, which isn't too far from where I live. And uh, yeah, I, I tuned in one night to see the fights and um, just a random fight show uh, might even have been on DAZN, the new streaming service, DAZN. And um, he was fighting a real legit superstar. I think they're fighting at junior lightweight, either featherweight or junior lightweight, I think 135. And... Um, uh, Alberto Machado from Puerto Rico was undefeated, a complete superstar, had the whole package. He was uh, promoted by Golden Boy, Oscar De La Hoya, trained by Freddie Roach. I mean, it looked like a complete mismatch. You know, we call those uh, the fighters, any, anyone who's fighting a like undefeated superstar, uh, they call them an opponent. Uh, they're not there to lose, but their promoters and manager clearly think that this is a walkover and they're just going to run the other guy over. And, you know, I'm watching, I don't know anything about Andrew Cancio. He's a Mexican American kid, grew up in Blythe, California. Um, and just a tough little dude. And, uh, you know, the fight starts and boom, first round Machado hits him with a bomb of an uppercut drops him, just a good solid punch. And I remember thinking, like, man, that kid is, like, really, Cancio is really composed. He took a knee, looked at his corner, exactly everything that you should do as a fighter that you, you, someone can tell you to do, but when you're punched in the face and, and you know, on Queer Street and, and thinking it and doing it, two different things. So he um, takes a knee, takes a full eight count before he gets up. You know, he, 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 he was buzzed, but he wasn't hurt at that point. And you could tell, well, he gets back to his corner and Machado almost swaggered back to his corner. Like, yeah, I got this kid. I'm going to smash him. And that's what it looked like. And, but Machado came, um, Cancio came out in the second round, started working the body and like just broke him down over the course of literally a round and a half body shots, body shots, then back up to the head. Machado didn't know where the punches were coming from. And I, I can't stress to you enough how on paper outclassed Cancio was against this kid. Alberto Machado was like four inches taller. He just looked a lot bigger. <clears throat> and once Cancio started getting to him and getting to the body, he eventually stopped him. He just kept knocking him down with body shots. And eventually the, uh, Machado just couldn't get up after enough of them. He just, you know, if you've ever been hit in the body, it's, it's debilitating. You're brain is telling you just get up and but your body will will not respond it's literally like it just shorts out like your nervous system or something it's the most painful thing in the world and uh you know when they announce when when they wave off the fight you can see cancio like breaks down crying he had had a um, decent pro career lost his one title shot against jojo diaz and basically retired from boxing was getting a shit deal and a again uh, a bad deal on the runaround from his um management and promotion team and retired and um new manager approached him about a year ago and said, we, you, you, you shouldn't retire. You're a good fighter with the right management and promotion. You might still be able to get a title shot. Andrew was working full time at SoCal Gas, literally working at Jack Hammer on the road crew. And um, he, yeah, he took a couple fights, beat a, again, got he took two fights against undefeated Russian kids or, or sorry, Eastern European kids. I think, uh, I don't know if they were both, one might've been Kazakh or something, but, but undefeated, like I think Olympic pedigree guys 
looking to be like clearly outclassed again. He beats them both. And then they call him and say, hey, we got a title shot for you against Alberto Machado main event in Indio, California, which is very close to Blythe. Blythe is like in Southern California, but like way inland, uh, heavy Mexican-American community. So literally the place is sold out for Cancio. And to see him stop this kid and win the world title, like, I mean, even thinking about now, it makes me want to cry. It's just such an incredible story. It's 10 times better than Rocky because it's real. I mean, the kid was like, he took vacation time to take this fight. You know, after the fight, they said uh, SoCal Gas gave him the Monday off after he won the fight. He was back in work on Tuesday. He said that, um, you know, we were like, what would you do to celebrate the fight? And he said, uh, oh, I had to buy breakfast for my whole crew because I want, they assumed that, you know, you win the title. I must have made millions of dollars, which isn't the case. But so anyway, after I saw that, I reached out to him literally on Facebook Instant Messenger. And I said, yo, we want to have you on the show. One of the nice things about having been on the show was Teddy, who's just world class guy. Anyone will respond to you if you want to interview them. He's so well-respected going into the Hall of Fame this summer. And uh, Andrew's uh, manager eventually got back to me a day or two later, and then we we interviewed him in um, Oxnard while Teddy was in uh, camp with Alex Vosdick, the light heavyweight champ, preparing for his recent title defense. And uh, so I met Andrew there, and it was Man, it was just awesome. It's like, you know, um, at the end of the day, I'm I'm a fan, you know. He came, he brought his belt, he brought his, literally his whole family, his management team. It was awesome. It was just so genuine and so sincere. The guy, it's just so incredible to see someone reach their lifelong dream. And I told him you should tell SoCal Gas that they should be your uh, signature sponsor and they should give you a leave of absence indefinitely and guarantee your job back for all the attention you've gotten for them. And uh, I think maybe if they, if he wins his next fight, they may do that. But um, we've become super friendly as a result. And we were sitting down just about to record the show. And he says to me, uh, oh, man, I'm so nervous. And I said, what about the title defense? He said, no, about this interview. I said, are you crazy? This interview? No one's going to punch you here. And not only that, you're nervous. What if I do a shit job? Teddy's going to fire me. <laughs> so he's just like such a good dude, man. I really, I can't tell you, I love the guy. He's just the nicest, nicest kid. El Chango, which means the monkey in Spanish. Just uh, awesome, dude. Oh, yeah, it was like... Such a cool interview. Yeah. And I mean, you even said it during it. You're like, this should be a movie. I mean, you talk about Rocky. It was a, a story. What it is. Kids were the ones that told him you need to go back and start fighting. Yep. It was, it was like out of a movie. Yep. No, that's exactly right. And, and, and back to the fight podcast. Yeah. This is this, this podcast in this boxing show would be like, um, you know, people always say, if you don't, if you never want to work, do something you love. And that's how I feel about the podcast is like, I'm so grateful for to Teddy for giving me the chance to host this with him. And, you know, my kids were like, dad, when are you going to talk? And I said, no, 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 you got to understand it's Teddy's show. I'm just there to kind of like keep him on track and raise the topics. And that's the way that's, that that's the way I like it. So I'm always conscious of trying to do a good job for Teddy. And it's like, um, you know, you, you couldn't pay me enough. I'd pay them to continue doing this. I just, I love it. You know, it's like the most passionate I've ever been about anything. It means more to me than running races. It's just, I've loved boxing since I was a little kid. And the the thought of getting to talk boxing with Teddy and with these like world champion fighters, like it just never loses its luster to me. It's like, it is like a dream assignment. I can't tell you how much I enjoy it and how much I care about it and how much I want to do well. And like I was talking to you before when that 
episode posts, I have a momentary anxiety attack every single time. And one just posted before we got on the air today. And I was like, man, I can't even listen to it. I can't watch it. I'm like analyzing every word I said. I just, I just want to do a good job. You know what I mean? Uh, really, it really comes across your passion, your excitement, and you're like the perfect foil for uh, Teddy Atlas too. It's like you finally get a word in, and Teddy just chimes in. Let me tell you a story, and you don't even miss a beat. Ken's like, Ken's like, go ahead. <laughs> it was I was laughing out loud. I was like, Ken's talking. No, he's not. He was like, go ahead, Teddy. Uh, dude, I can't even tell you. Even when I hear you say, "Oh, when you're talking to Teddy," it doesn't even seem real to me. It's like <laughs> I'm 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 doing a boxing show with Teddy Atlas, like. I, I, I clearly I'm never going to be the middleweight champion of the world and short of doing that, being able to have a voice and be any kind of considered any kind of authority in the sport. Not that I consider myself an authority, but to be involved with an, such an authority like Teddy and I'm going to the Lomachenko fight this, this coming Friday. And it just like, it never gets old to me. And sometimes people reach out, fans reach out like, Hey, on, on, on Instagram or Facebook. And I try to respond to everyone. And the guy says to me the other day, Oh, it's so nice that you take time to interact with the fans. And I'm like, dude, I'm a fan. What are you talking about? I'm so happy that you think enough of me to take time to send me a message of what, what why wouldn't I respond to this? Well, what am I like a big shot? You know, I'm like, I'm just like you. Teddy just asked me to host his co-host a show with them. And I, I couldn't be happier. I'm, I'm completely enamored it's just as exciting today as it was day one it's cool i mean for, and you're showing your kids another example of you're showing your kids to go after their something they're excited about and to see you excited about creating something and putting yourself out there i think that's great you know example for them um and you guys you talk about a lot of you know i'm, I'm i was a casual boxing fan i loved like watching tyson roy jones and stuff but i haven't really followed it in the last 10 years and i couldn't turn this show off i mean you guys are you're talking boxing or Teddy's talking a lot of boxing, but he's also talking life lessons, how everything is kind of a metaphor for life. He's talking families, talking being a dad. I think he even wrote a book, you know, that was had that in the title. What is he told a story about one of his fighters daughter getting the flu. So he had to move out of the house to train and how hard that was yeah. on him. So it's like hearing this behind the scenes look, especially at like, other dads is really uh it's really compelling and it really resonates so it's really a great great show I, I highly recommend everybody check it out if you have any interest in boxing at all for sure even if you don't like boxing <laughs> check yeah. it out well that's that's the key is we're trying to like <clears throat> relate everything to boxing to, as the title implies the fight the fight doesn't have to be a boxing match it can be everyday life and how do you deal with everyday challenges and teddy goes into it in the first episode explains the motivation behind the podcast and um how that fighter mentality can apply to an everyday life and i think about it myself is like you know what i want to win i'm running boston marathon on uh, next monday and and i've trained like an average of 75 miles a week for 10 weeks and i think I want to win the master's division over 40. And when I get up, I think about the whole time I'm running, I think about what are the other guys that are going to be competitive with me? What are they doing? Are they training hard? Cause I want to train harder. I want to make sure I'm doing everything right to give myself the best chance to win. And, um, you know, that, and I use a lot of the lessons that we discuss in the fight podcast and apply it to my running and, 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 and triathlon training. So it doesn't have to be, a fist fight, it can be any kind of struggle that you're dealing with work, athletics, raising your kids. Yeah. 
I used oh, okay. I used it this week. We were we had two kids homesick for spring break, and on day nine, I was like, "This is like the eleventh round of a fight right here." I'm I'm listening <laughs> I'm listening to Teddy and you talk about it, and I got kids in the back. I was like, maybe this is just like a boxing match. Maybe that's how I should think of it. Dude, I don't know how you stay home with your kids all day. Like, (laughs) to me, it's the hardest job in the world. I know it sounds crazy to some people who don't have kids, but man, kids need constant supervision and attention. There's no like, oh, let me like check out, see what's going on on the internet. The minute I turn and look away, especially when they're younger, like maybe like two to five, they're just like, you, you just, they're always up to something. One time, one of my kids got out of the house when the nanny was watching him and literally the neighborhood security slash police brought him home in the car. Like (laughs) I think about all the things that could have happened there. And I'm just like, my God, I mean, thank God it wasn't me on duty. My wife would have killed me, but, (laughs) and and the nanny was mortified. You know, you got a lot of kids. It's easy for one of them to sneak away, but that was a, that was a head scratcher to say the least well it's good to hear other people are going through it so uh i appreciate it i appreciate you being on and talking boxing talking racing talking dad life where can uh where can people learn more about what you're up to uh you know you can follow me on twitter um i think my name is k rideout one two same on um ken rideout one two on instagram facebook Check out the fight with Teddy Atlas on iTunes and YouTube. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you want to see um, someone making lots of mistakes, that's where you can find me because <laughs> I'm sure that I, I do probably do more wrong than I do right. And just, again, if I can summarize everything, it's just try hard, whatever you're doing. Everyone makes mistakes. No one is perfect. Just stay the course. And I appreciate you letting me come on and talk to you about being a dad. It's uh, one of my favorite jobs and definitely not the easiest. And uh, sorry if I got a little long-winded. No, you deserve it. I got to listen to Teddy talking the whole time. You deserve to get a few words in, you know? (laughs) Thanks, man. I appreciate it. (laughs) All right, Ken. We'll talk soon. Thanks for being on. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thank you guys for listening to the Dad the Best I Can show. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Actually, five stars. We could do better than that. Brooks? Infinity. Infinity stars. Cameron, how many stars? Infinity thousand. Infinity thousand. You got to one-up them in this household. Thanks. See ya.